Welcome to the Declaration Church Sermon of the Week. We hope you enjoy this message from Pastor John Sherrill. For more information about Declaration Church and other resources, visit declaration.org. You guys feeling good? You look good this morning. Kids look good. I'm glad to see all the kids in here. All right. Okay. Let's move on. I love that song, Jesus, you make the darkness tremble. You silence fear. You know what? I believe there's probably some of us in the room that just needs the fear to be silenced. It just needs to be gone. Sometimes when I pray, I heard this eloquently said one time, and I just embraced it because, man, it just was powerful. Someone said, man, when you pray, ask the Lord to silence all created voices and then only be able to hear from the uncreated voice. The name of Jesus silences fear this morning. And so we just proclaim boldly the name of Jesus over your situation, over your circumstance. We want to claim the name of Jesus over that, that he would silence fear. And the voice of the uncreated would speak his love and peace over your life and your family. Can I just, that's just a blessing I want to speak over you. Let's, let's, let's dig in. So weeks ago, we began this series in the book of John called The Great I Am. We launched into a study on the self-descriptions of Jesus, better known as the I am statements. There's seven of them. These identifying metaphors made by our Messiah helps us understand more about who Jesus is, but ultimately, through them and through him, we get a better understanding about who God is. We clearly see that Jesus wasn't just any teacher or any rabbi. He wasn't just any prophet or simply even any other man, but truly, Jesus was God incarnate whose purpose was to seek and save all that is lost. In other words, he was sent to rescue and redeem us. And this is really great news. Why? Because our God pursues us simply because he loves us. Jesus came to earth to rescue us because he loves us. And now, because he loves us, we have this privilege to live for him, abiding in him, all the while he desires to lead us through this life. He truly is the great I am. If there's ever a blank at the end of your sentence, God, I need, God, help with, God, he fills in every blank. He is the great I am. I am in that. I can do that. I am able. He is the great I am. So far, we've studied four areas, four of these um, these uh, descriptions that Jesus gives himself. He says, I'm the bread of life. He's saying, I am your provider, not just for today's manna or only in the miraculous, but I'm your provider in every way and every day, eternal and abundant. I am the bread of life. He says, I am the door or I am the gate. He is our all access pass to God. He gives us what I call the privilege of approach. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal that we have access into the very throne room, into the holy of holies to get to God through Jesus. He's the door. We learn that he is the vine. We remain in him. We abide. We are rooted in him. From him is the source of life. I love acronyms. So life, L-I-F-E, living in freedom every day. We remain in him and we walk in freedom. It's that simple. It's that simple. It's a simple arithmetic equation, if you will. If you want to walk in freedom and live in freedom, remain in him. He is the vine. We also looked at, I am the good shepherd, he says. He leads us in love with such intentional purpose, reminding us he is our provider. So today we're going to turn our attention to another I am statement from the great I am. 
In John chapter 8, verse 12, I want to encourage you, church, if you have a Bible, be bringing that. Open it with us. Look at it. Get your, get your fingers through those pages so, so that you are in the habit of looking through that. If you don't have a Bible, we have some that we can get to you. And if you would like one, make sure that you see the hub at the end of the service. We will give you one as a gift. But in John chapter 8, verse 12, Jesus said this. He says, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. What does Jesus mean by this? What does Jesus mean? I am the light of the world. Well, we know light. Um, light's the opposite of what? We can see light. We can quantify light. Um, daytime and what? Nighttime. There you go. Somebody watches TV. I got you. Daytime and? Thank you, Tim Bean. Um, has anybody ever stumbled through a dark room to try to find the light switch? Has anyone ever done that? Right? Yeah. There's a definitive difference when the switch is in the on position versus the off position. So what does Jesus mean when he declares, I am the light of the world? All throughout the series, we've seen Jesus teach and heal and challenge people to believe in him, to believe in who he is. Um, one of the first things that we notice throughout all the book of, of John in this narrative, there, there's so many conversation and so many moments of ministry that take place so that people may see Jesus, that they may hear Jesus, that they may encounter the power of Jesus, that they may be in the presence of Jesus, so that they may have the opportunity to believe in the person of Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh. Let me remind you, just as we have in every week through this series, the purpose of the writings of John. John chapter 20, verse 31 says, These things are written. I write all this so that you may continue to believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the one prophesied about, the Son of God, and that by believing in him you will have life by the power of his name. That's why it's so, so powerful corporately when we stand and declare one name is higher, one name is stronger than any grave and any throne, and at his name, at the power of his name, the wonderful name of Jesus. All of darkness trembles, and he silences fear. There is power in his name. So this, in essence, this verse, chapter 20, verse 31 of John, is a summary of the entirety of this book. Sadly, many times, the, the audience did not get it. They didn't receive it. Scripture even says, even his own people didn't receive him. And even more tragically today, many times, people still don't get it. They still refuse to receive him. There's another thing we see all throughout John before we dig in, which is this brewing tension between Jesus and the religious authority of the day, the religious leaders. A good way to describe the religious leaders of this day would be the blind leading the blind or men in darkness trying to lead men through darkness. Blind guides leading blind guys. I have a friend named Neil. One time he and I had the opportunity to do an event at a local, uh, not a local here, but in the, in the area, Christian school. And uh, we, uh, we got through the week, and it was a challenging week. Um, I, there was many times that as we were leading, I was like, okay, do me a favor, everyone. Put your fingers right here. Is it beaten? I mean, you know, it's like it was just a hard week. And by the end of the week, um, the guy who had invited my friend and I um, took us to lunch. And Neil was an interesting cat. He would always say things that you were like, you can't, you can't say that out loud. Way worse than me, I promise. <laughs> I promise. And so we're sitting there, and, and, and sure enough, the question comes, so Neil, tell me, how do you feel like it went? And I'm just going, oh, my gosh. I mean, just like bite sandwich, drink tea, don't say a word. Eyes wide open. 
I have no idea what's about to happen. Neil, how do you feel like it went? And Neil, you know, takes a swig of his tea and he goes, well, I'll tell you what. That's how he talks. I'll tell you what. I feel like I'm DJing a dance for deaf kids. That's what he said. So here's John in the moment, okay? Oh, what's he going to say? Swig of tea. I feel like I'm DJing. I mean, I just like, I nearly spit tea everywhere when he said it. I could not believe that that's what he said. I'm like, yep, check. Never getting invited back here again, you know? Man, that's so true. Tragically, this is, this is a true reality where still today there are those walking spiritually blind in darkness. And even in the church universal, we still have some blind guides leading blind guys. We asked this potent question, I believe, a few weeks ago. I feel like it's a very powerful question. It's something I've asked myself many times throughout the years. If Jesus Christ walked into the room in flesh... Would we recognize him? Would we know him? Or would we find ourselves like the religious leaders of that day and not even get it? I mean, do today, common day, do we know his presence when he steps into the room? Would we know it? So let me set the scene as we get into John 8. John 7, some things happen. It's important to understand kind of as we move into John 8 to where we get to this, this, this statement in verse 12. Um, this is a time, the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, the Festival of Shelters. There's a lot of names for this. I don't know what translation you have, but you might see those. I'm going to go with the Feast of Tabernacles. This is about to take place, and, and Jesus is already being hunted by the Jewish leaders of this day. But nevertheless, his brothers are like, hey, why don't you go down? Come with this. It's going to be super fun times. Plus, if you want people to know who you are, you might want to show yourself. And he's like, not my time. Go ahead. Have a good time. Brothers go off to the feast. Jesus hangs back, but then decides to go incognito. So he goes to hang out. Well, he can't just sit on the sidelines, so he begins to teach in the temple. All around, people are debating who this guy is. Some are even saying, yeah, he's got a demon. You know, some are, some are, some are going ahead and accusing that. Um, there's others that are really struggling with, do I believe him? Do I believe in who he says that he is? He begins to challenge the religious leaders. He calls them out in verse 19 of chapter 7, which I thought was pretty, pretty uh, incredible. He says, hey, listen, Moses gave you the law, but none of you obey it. So why are you trying to kill me? I mean, that's, this is exactly what Jesus says in 719. Moses gave you the law, but you're not so good at it. Why are you coming after me? And then he goes on and, 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 and challenges the current context of circumcision, this, this outward expression of this inward devotion. It's also an identifying way to say, hey, I'm a really good Jew. And he says, hey, you would do that on the Sabbath, but you're going to get mad at me for making a whole body well on the Sabbath? And so all this stuff takes place in chapter 7. And then at the very end, the pinnacle part at the very end, in 7 verse 37, it's one of my favorite times. It's getting to the end of the feast, the festival. And Jesus says, hey, any of you who wants living water, come to me. Come to me. I'm going to invite you to come to me. Believe in me. And out of you, out of your heart will flow this water. So that's how he wraps chapter 7. We pick up in John 8. Verse 1, Jesus returned to the Mount of Olives, and early the next morning, he was back again at the temple. So he had finished that night. I'm sure that that was a very controversial statement. We'll see in a minute. He finished that night. He comes back the next day, takes his place back at the temple. A crowd, of course, gathers. He sits down and begins to teach. So he arrives early in the morning at the temple in the Mount of Olives to minister to the multitudes. Um, This is the day after the final evening of the Feast of Tabernacles. The feast would involve two ceremonies. One the pouring of water to commemorate the water that came from the rock, if you remember that story. 
Interesting that Jesus had this, this statement in 737 because he invited all who had thirst to come to him to drink. This is contrasting. I mean, it's, it's not, con- but it's, it's complementing what they saw God do in providing for their thirst. And so he's coming along beside this saying, hey, if you want, I know that you're celebrating water coming from a rock right now, but if you really are thirsty, come to me, is what he's saying. Do you see what's happening here? He's saying, come to me. It's another way of Jesus declaring, I am God. I am your provider. He goes on to say, if anyone would believe in me, rivers of water will flow from your heart. Living water, basically saying, the Holy Spirit, who is not yet to come, I'm going to do something so powerful. I know you don't get it, right? This is what I know you probably don't understand this. But if you have thirst, you do understand this ceremony that you just finished up. And so because you understand one of the things you celebrate when it comes to the water I am living water. Come to me. The second ceremony commemorated the illumination of the temple, which represented the pillar of fire that led the Israelites through the wilderness by night. And we're going to come back to this in a minute. But watch what happens next in verse 3. As Jesus is speaking, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees, the scribes and Pharisees, brings a woman who had been caught in the act of adultery, and they put her in front of the crowd. Teacher, they say to Jesus, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law of Moses says to Stoner, what do you say? Interesting. They identify Jesus as teacher, first of all. I found that interesting. See, in Jewish culture, if you were a rabbi, you were given a title of honor. And they actually ascribed to him this title, teacher. As a rabbi, as a teacher, you may hear some of these rabbis say, so-and-so says this, and then follow it up with, but I say, and add to it. And so basically what these scribes and Pharisees are doing right here is they're saying, hey, teacher, Moses, you know what he said, but what do you say, teacher? What do you say? What are they trying to do? Look at verse 6. It says this. They are trying to trap him into saying something they could use against him. But Jesus bends down, he stoops down, and begins to write in the dust with his finger. What? Okay, so... I hope you can imagine this. I hope you're with me just in, in the theater of your mind's eye. You're, you're thinking through this. Think, think about what's happening. Just envision it. Like you've got a bird's eye view of this deal. And, and they bring this woman in, and, and they throw her in front of these people, and they say, hey, teacher, this is what's happened. We've caught her. You know what Moses says, but what do you say? Jesus, huh, I'm going to play in the dirt like a little leaguer, right? <laughs> what? What's he doing? What's going on? Here's what's happening. These religious leaders are trying to pin Jesus down, but Jesus is playing in the dirt. Why is he just writing in the dirt? Was he, was, he, was he practicing his autograph? Getting pretty famous. Better learn to write it, Jesus. I mean, no. You know, what was he doing, right? What's going on? Some would say, according to Jeremiah 17, this is a prophetic action. Look at Jeremiah 17, verse 13. It says this, O Lord, the hope of Israel, all who turn away from you will be disgraced. They will be buried in the dust of the earth, for they have abandoned the Lord, the fountain of living water. Some say this is a prophetic action that is taking place right here as Jesus is riding in the dirt. I mean, was Jesus prophetically writing down the names of these religious leaders? That's a question. It says, those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Was he writing their names? What was he doing? Some say that that is a prophetic activity. Another suggestion is that, that, that um, 
that Jesus may have actually been writing the sins of these religious men, these men, right there in front of them to see. I mean, there's no proof in this. This is just suggestion of what was he doing. The Bible is not implicit on what is he writing. These are just some of the suggestions in study. Another suggestion is that Jesus' action was a sign of his refusal to simply debate the issue on the terms dictated by these teachers of the law. And this would account for their persistent questioning. Look at verse 7. It says, they kept demanding an answer. So he stood up again and says, all right, but let the, first, let, let the one who has never sinned throw the first stone, is what he says. This is his, this is his um, rebuttal. Okay. Let the first one of you without sin go ahead and throw the first stone. I mean, can you imagine this? I mean, it's kind of like mic drop. <laughs> Stunned a little bit. I'm sorry, what, what, what did you just say? Yeah. Let the one of you who has never sinned throw the first stone. I mean, can you imagine the looks on the faces of this mob in this moment? I mean, they're thinking, man, we got him. We finally got it. We have him now. We've got him. And then Jesus just kind of plays it right back at them. I want you to understand this. Listen, this situation playing out was not about accusing this woman. This situation that's playing out was about accusing Jesus. According to the law in Deuteronomy 17, 7, witnesses to a capital offense had to cast the first stone when the accused was condemned to death. Jesus just kind of brings that back to him. He knew it. And these guys should have also known this. Why? Because these were the guys who know the law. Also interesting question comes to mind. And this is silent in Scripture, but culturally this was surely implied. Okay, well, if you caught her in the act of adultery, where's the man? Where's the other? Where's the guy? Where's the other guilty party? If this woman was truly caught in the act, which she would have had to been caught in the act to be brought out, where is the other guilty party? See, these men were willing to humiliate this woman. These, these guys, were, they were completely willing to strip her of her dignity, most likely brought naked and drugged to Jesus, thrown in the middle of this angry mob. There she is. Think about it. I mean, what type of depravity and and darkness must grip the hearts of these guys who claim to be leaders what they're doing to her and then jesus i mean jesus regarded these teachers of the law as the obvious witnesses to the to the offense therefore they are the ones that should begin this execution that they're calling for if it were going to happen but they couldn't do it after jesus called them out I mean, the words of Jesus challenged the accusers, implying that none of them was without sin, and therefore they were in no position to condemn this woman. So what sin Jesus was implying they were guilty of is not clear. But they were guilty. Maybe they were also guilty of adultery. Maybe it was a different type of adultery. Maybe it was an adultery to the law that they were guilty of. Here's the tragedy. These religious men claimed to know the law of God, yet they didn't recognize that the God of the law was standing right in front of them. They didn't see it. So scripture says in verse eight, after he says this this earth-shattering statement, what does he do? He just goes back down and starts writing in the dirt again. (laughs) I mean, he just shuts it down and goes back to writing in the dirt. This moment is probably the best indicator of Jesus saying, debate finished. I'm going to refuse to play into this. I'm done. 
Look at verse 9. It says, when the accusers heard this, they slipped away one by one, beginning with the oldest, until only Jesus was left in the middle of the crowd with this woman. One by one, beginning with the oldest of the religious leaders, they'd be just going to peel away until no one's left but this lady and only Jesus. Somebody say, only Jesus. Listen. There is no condemnation for you who is in Christ. I want you to hear this. I want you to understand this. If you have felt like the humiliated, judged woman in the middle of the mob, isn't it good to know? Isn't it good to know that there is no human that is holy enough or righteous enough that should ever dare to throw a stone at you? They all fade until only Jesus remains. I love this. And check out what's happened next. Verse 10. Jesus stood up again and says to the woman, where are your accusers? Where they go? Didn't even one of them condemn you? No, Lord, she says. I love that. I mean, obviously she is, I mean, no dignity. And still she gives him this respect. She, She basically with her words articulates, I believe you. No, Lord. She says, um, none of them are here. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you either. Now go and sin no more. I want you to hear this in the culture that we live in. I want you to understand this. Jesus is not soft on sin here. I know in the name of social justice or tolerance or seeker-friendly sensitivity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, I know that there is a large move, a large push to weaken or water down theology or who God is in the name of love to to almost get to a place where we as the church and we as the people, we were not called to be the judge and jury. All we were called to be is more like Jesus. But here's the deal. We have got to understand that even in our cultural context, Jesus was not soft on sin. Why? What did he say? He said, go and sin no more. Not because he wanted to lower the gauntlet and say, hey, follow the rules, little lady. That's not what he was saying. He was saying, go and sin no more because the activity of your life is not God's best plan for you. It is not where you will find joy and assurance and peace and comfort and encouragement and and even happiness. It is not where you will get your satisfaction and fulfillment. Go and sin no more. Don't do it anymore. You're trying to self-medicate. You can't fix you. Your brokenness can only be repaired by me. That's why I'm here. Go and sin no more. He is not soft on sin. He did not save her from this to send her back into her sin. He didn't lay his well-being on the line to send her off to continue to wallow in her old life. That's not what he was doing. He says, go and sin no more. You know what this means? This means that Jesus gave her a second chance. And another chance means the opportunity to change. Because in Jesus, there's this gospel of a second chance. That's probably good news to some of us. This whole exchange from John 7 until now leads us to this amazing statement that Jesus is about to make in verse 12 when he says this. He spoke to the people once more and says, I'm the light of the world. I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. In this passage, Jesus is making this great claim. I am the light of the world. I make darkness tremble. I silence fear. Can I ask you a question? Do you remember when you were a kid 
At night, when you went to bed, and it was bedtime, finish the sentence if you've heard before what I'm about to say, or if you've even felt this way. But mommy and daddy, I'm afraid of the... Oh, come on. I'm afraid of the what? You know what I'm talking about. Why? Because darkness is unsettling. It's unsettling. One time in October, Kelly and I were in college... And uh, some friends had this brilliant idea that we should go down to downtown Houston and go to a haunted house. (laughs) Somebody's laughing because you're like, totes done that, right? (laughs) I know. Some of you are like planning it. That's tragic. (laughs) That's scary. Um, But I want you to to go there with me. So Kelly and I, we've got probably four of our friends with us, and we go to this haunted house, and it's dark, and it's scary, and people are jumping out and screaming and all kind of stuff, and it's it's just messy. And... um, and at the very end, I mean, you, you, we walk through this, this really dark maze to get to the end, and there's all these noises going around us, and, and she is gripping. I, in fact, today I probably still have fingernail marks in my arm because of this moment. She is gripping my arm, and, and we finally get right to the very end. Where we're about to go out of, the, of this, this haunted house. We didn't realize that it was out, but we get to the end, and this door begins to open, and all of a sudden you hear this, this chainsaw rear up, right? I mean, So in this moment, I need you to understand what happens. Kelly runs as fast as she can, no direction in mind. She just takes off. And all of a sudden, you hear this, boom, ow. She ran face first into a wall. Of course she did. Of course she did. I mean, she had Texas Chainsaw Massacre dude after her, and it's dark, and there's nothing worse than hearing a chainsaw in the dark. Of course she did. I know it had to hurt. Why'd she run? Why'd she run? She ran, listen, you know why she ran? Because darkness is dangerous, y'all. Darkness is dangerous. And we knew it was just pretend, but do you know how many people day in and day out dabble in stuff that they should know, man, this is not what I need to dabble in. Why? Because darkness is dangerous. It's dangerous. You know what Jesus is saying here? He's saying this. He's saying, when you are lost, when you are thirsty, when you have need, when you need protection, when you have lost your dignity, when you are feeling condemned, when you are in the depths of despair and in the suffering of your shame, when the mob is after you, when the darkness is unsettling and you're afraid, knowing that there is danger in the darkness, he is saying this, I am the light of the world. That's what he's saying. It's very likely that the background in which Jesus made this claim was incredibly vivid to these religious leaders and to really everyone else around. Here's why. Because remember, the feast had just wrapped up the evening prior. And we saw in John 7, 37, how the festival ceremony lent drama to this claim of Jesus about giving people living water. But there's another ceremony that connected with this festival. What's up, dude? (laughs) My man. Come on up, testify. All right. Here's the, other, here's the other ceremony. At the beginning of the feast, these huge candelabras were lit in the temple at night. They were elevated high above the temple courts, illuminating the area, and this was done to remind the people of God's guiding light of promise, the light that represented the Shekinah glory of God or the very presence of God. And I find it interesting that when the light of the religious feast was extinguished, Jesus steps up to make this claim, I'm the light of the world. I am the fulfillment of this feast for you. 
You don't have to focus on what was, worshiping what God did for your ancestors. Look at me. Focus on what is right in front of you right now. Listen, I don't want you to miss this. Listen. They've just extinguished the lights commemorating God's presence and the hope of the return of the Messiah, yet they do not have a clue that the Messiah is standing right in front of them. They were a people walking in darkness. And I love this. I love that Jesus speaks up while the charred torches are still smoking and makes this declaration, I am the light of the world. I will guide you. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but you will have the light of life. I believe Jesus is making three bold statements here. He's saying, number one, he's declaring God's presence. I'm the light. I am. I am God's presence. God, I'm here. Number two, he's declaring God's protection. Follow me. Don't walk in darkness. Don't follow the blind guides trying to lead the blind guys. I'll protect you. I'm the good shepherd. Follow me. Third thing, he's declaring God's provision. I am the light of life, the light of life. C.S. Lewis once said this. I believe in Christ like I believe in the sun, not only because I see it, but because by it all things are seen. Jesus is declaring, I'm the light of the world. I am the son of God, and by me all things are clearly seen. All things are clearly seen. I'm the light that leads you to the land of promise. I'm the light that exposes the darkness around you and reveals the truth of God. I am the light that is available to all who believe. I'm the great I am. The great I am. I want to remind you as we respond this this morning, there's so much more that can be said about this. But I want to remind you In Luke chapter 4, Jesus um, does this incredible thing. He says something so incredible. And he's quoting from the prophet Isaiah, talking about the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, et cetera, et cetera, to set the, the liberty of those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And in verse 20, it says, he rolls up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And it says this, listen, it says, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. He makes this incredible statement. And every eye in the synagogue is fixed on him. May our eyes be fixed on him. He's the light of the world. He came to declare good news, to set those in bondage free, to open the eyes of the blind, to free those from oppression. Declaration Church, we just together... I pray that our lives would proclaim, let there be light. The light of the world. And don't forget John 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him there was nothing made. In Him was life, and the life was what? The light of man. He's the light of the world. The light shines in darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. He's the light of the world. One more story and then we'll respond to him. There's a story about this dad walking in the woods with his son. And they were talking deep things, man, little dude. They're talking deep things about life. 
And the dad says to his son, he says, do you know where we are? And the son goes, no, dad, I don't. And the dad says, well, then, I guess you were lost. And the boy smiled and looked at his dad with confidence. And he says, no, dad, I'm not lost because I'm with you. He's the light of the world. This morning, here's what I believe at this family service. Man, your kids, y'all done awesome. Come on. But here's what I believe. I believe that there's someone in the room that simply needs to say, yes, I believe, Jesus, you are the light of the world. Would you come and light up my darkness, change my life, make me new? He came and took a cross so that he could declare who he is. He rose again to separate himself from all of the other little powers that try to rise up and occupy your attention, affection, and allegiance to say, I am God and I win. And when he did that, he split time in half and and made a way that you could have access and friendship with God. All we have to do is simply say, yes, Jesus, that's what I want. The word says, call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. This morning, church, can we stand to our feet as we respond? And this is how we'll respond. We'll respond in some different ways. We're gonna invite you, if you need prayer this morning, we're gonna have prayer partners right along this silver wall back here and this black curtain over here. And they'll be standing there waiting to receive you and pray with you. If you would like to come up here, we just kind of call these stairs an altar area. And and altars are where sacrifices are made. And basically, when we say sacrifice, we're saying, you know what, I'm going to come up here and I'm going to kneel before the Lord. And I am going to willingly lay my life down to say, God, I want your life for me. I've tried on my own and it's it's not working. You can do that. And also, we invite you to the table of the Lord this morning. Some call it communion, the Lord's Supper, Eucharist. But we invite you to respond in this way, to to come before the Lord and say, Lord, point out anything you would find in me that would grieve you because I want to come towards you and know that I have clean hands and a pure heart. Take that time for a minute and just talk with him and, and just maybe spend some time in confession. And then we invite you to come up. We'll have three teams, I believe, up here waiting to receive you. And And what this is all about is simply this. Jesus was whole, his body was whole, but he willingly chose to be broken so in turn we then could be whole. That's what he wants to do for us. He was full and we were empty, but he emptied himself on a cross and he spilled his blood. And this represents the blood of Christ that was spilled. He emptied himself so that we could be filled. And so this morning we come and we take a small piece of that bread, which represents the body broken, the body of Christ, and we dip it right into that juice, which represents the blood that was spilled. And we take and we eat, thankful and humble, so deeply grateful. Thanks be to God. We believe that God meets us in that moment. So can we respond to the Lord for just a few minutes and then we'll go home to watch for the tornado warnings? Father, we pray in Jesus' name this morning, God. There's some that just need to to know that you are the light of the world, lighting up their darkness, showing the path, illuminating the way to life abundant and eternal. So, Father, speak. Move in us, Lord. 
And as we come to your table, Father, we declare your death until you return for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's respond to him for the next few minutes. Thanks for listening to the Declaration Church podcast. We pray many blessings over you and your journey as you declare him to the nations. For more podcasts and teaching, visit declaration.org slash podcast.